Good morning. I'll be reading Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, which speaks on Christ's example of humility. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Essential Doctrine is our current teaching series, What Every Christian Should Know. We've come now to the I in the acronym Doctrine, and that stands for Incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, keep them open there or turn to the reading that we just had, uh, Philippians chapter 2. We'll be going back to those verses, verses 1 through 11. So this idea of doctrine, what every Christian should should know D stands for deity of Christ, O original sin, C canon of scripture, T trinity, R resurrection, and now we come to incarnation. Um, We're going to talk about conflict resolution here this morning. And you might go, what? What does that have to do with incarnation? It has everything to do with incarnation. In fact, incarnation has a lot to do with conflict resolution. And um, how many would say by show of hands that you could probably use some help in this area of conflict resolution, maybe continuing to develop your skills? Yeah, I think all of us could probably say that. I continue need continue to need some help in that area. And so you can see on the notes there, part of our intro, we're going to talk about relationships. And relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. Therefore, individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships. Does that make sense? So relationships are only as healthy. They're only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. Therefore, individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships. What am I saying? Work on you. You work on you, you become whole, you'll be better at conflict resolution. Then you'll be able to respond to that hard to get along with person much better. You'll be able to kind of work through those, those issues much better because you're operating not out of a deficit but out of an abundance of what, what you have in Christ Jesus. There's a wholeness. You'll experience a wholeness. Now here's, a, here's another thought too as it relates to relationships. Relationships do not put us in conflict with others as much as they put us in conflict with our own sinful nature. Do you get that? It's not them, it's you, okay? It's you, yeah, they're, they're ornery, they're angry, they're hard to get along with, I understand that. But what, how are you responding? See, you can become a facilitator of healing in those relationships if you begin to work on you and you find wholeness. So, so when you go through, uh, Negative relationships, hard, hard relationships, bad circumstances, whatever it might be, what is it doing? It's exposing who you really are. It's putting on display what's inside of you. And so it gives opportunity to say, whoa, I'm not what I thought I was, or I told everybody I was, and now I need to work on me. Yes, you do. We all do. And so God's giving you that great opportunity to do that. So conflict is not a bad thing. Our tendency with conflict is we fight or flight. We need to be careful with either one of those. We need to actually face the conflict. 
And, and, and obviously, in abusive situations, you flight, you get out of there, and there's appropriate times to fight and flight. But for the most part, we've got to learn how to face those conflict issues and, and don't run from conflict because conflict is actually great opportunity, really, really great opportunity to increase your capacity to, to not only know God and mature, not only gives it opportunity for maturity and intimacy with God, but also maturity and intimacy with this person that you're dealing with. And so, in fact, here's the next thought on your notes. The extent to which two people in a relationship can bring up and resolve issues is a critical marker of the soundness of the relationship. I mean, if you have any relationships where you feel like you're walking around on eggshells, you guys know what I'm talking about when I say that? It's like, I don't want to, I don't want to create problems. Well, that's a problem. That's a major problem. And so you need to be able to communicate those things. I feel like this. When you do A, I feel B. And how could we work this out? How can we work through this? And, um, and so to the extent two people in a relationship can bring up and resolve issues, it is a critical marker of the soundness of relationships. So now let's come to the incarnation. It's beautiful, absolutely breathtaking when we understand the implications of the incarnation. The incarnation, God becoming man, is the ultimate uh, model or example of conflict resolution, model and means to conflict resolution. It's the ultimate model and means to conflict resolution. So what we're looking at here this morning, the cause, what is the cause? I believe in our text, this is what Paul is giving us, the cause of conflict resolution, the cure to conflict resolution, and the ultimate model and means to conflict resolution, which is the incarnation. That's where we're headed and so uh, let's look at this first one. The cause of conflict resolution is pride. You got that first fill in the blank on your notes. Let me walk you back through the first three verses of our text. And notice what he says in verse one. He gives us the motives for unity and harmony. He says, so if there is any so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy... Literally in the Greek, it's not if, but because you have these things. Since you have these things. We have these things. If you're a believer in Christ, you have these. Now, whether you're accessing these is, is another thing. But he's just saying, do you realize that you have encouragement in Christ, comfort from his love? Oh, my goodness, there's nothing like his love and, and any participation with the Spirit, intimacy with God through the Holy Spirit, empowering, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy coming to you from God. And then he gives us the marks of unity and harmony in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. We could do a whole study just on that verse right there, what that means, unity, harmony. We're not... You'll have to look that up later and study that, but this is what he's talking about, unity, harmony. And then verse 3, he gives us the answer to the question, what is the cause of conflict? And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. I, I noticed that in our, up on the text there this morning, it was rivalry, but it's the same. So selfish ambition, a rivalry, or conceit. I've defined those words for you. It's important to understand the words, the, the meaning of the words. So selfish ambition... A rivalry is a desire to promote yourself. That makes sense, doesn't it? So you have this, we all have this desire to promote ourselves, to make much of ourselves. The word conceit is the Greek word kinodoxia. Kinos means to empty. Kino, that's the first part of the word. Kinos means to empty. Doxa, where we get our word doxology, means glory. And so you're empty of glory is what he's saying. You, you promote yourself because you're empty of glory. And uh, so glory empty or empty of glory means to be starved for, for respect, honor, validation, approval, and significance. And uh, so let me give you the next fill in the blank on your notes. So let's walk through this. So it is a cosmic insecurity... It is a cosmic insecurity of thinking and feeling that I don't matter or count. It's this overwhelming feeling. I don't matter, I don't count. Now, we might not ever say that, but we could certainly feel that and maybe even think that. And uh, 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, remember Adam and Eve before the fall, they were naked and unashamed. They were open, honest, intimacy, nakedness, and yet they were unashamed. And then after the fall, what happens? They become naked and afraid, okay, and filled with shame. And that was their spiritual condition. We were made to stand in the presence of God and receive his favor. But we believed the lie that God was holding out on us and rebelled against him. That spiritual alienation left us psychologically alienated with this cosmic insecurity inside of us. Here's the next point in your notes. This is the fallen human condition of internal conflict. It's a cosmic insecurity, internal conflict that causes external conflict. So all of our external conflict horizontally comes because I have internal conflict and I have internal conflict because I'm, I have, I've got vertical conflict going on. I've got conflict with God going on. I'm doubting his love and, and I'm doubting that he has my best interest at heart so I've turned away from him, therefore causing this psychological alienation cosmic insecurity within me and um, the result of that is because I got so much turmoil inside I'm going to create a lot of turmoil in my relationships it's just inevitable and let me uh, let me give you a good cross reference here I'll read it and kind of unpack it for you it's James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 listen to what James says He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So there's that external, external conflict. Is it, not that, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's that internal conflict. So he uses this word passions. The word passion is the word we get our, our word uh, hedonist, hedonist or hedonism. And it's, it's actually just a desire to be happy. The problem is, is where we try to get our happiness from. And uh, we try to get it more from created things than the creator, and that creates a problem. And he expels that out next because he says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. It's just where, do you, where are you getting your ultimate happiness from? And that's what creates the problems. Then he goes on. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask. You, do not, you don't come to God. You need to reconcile with God, is what he says as you continue to read this text out. You say, you need to reconcile with God. You need to receive the glory that you desperately need so you're not glory hungry and have this cosmic uh, insecurity going on inside of you. So then you can begin to respond appropriately, horizontally to, to your relationships. The word desire here is, is interesting. So he says, you desire. So he starts with passions. You want to be happy, but your desire... But you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So the word desire is, the Greek word is epithumia, epithumia, it's an over-desire. Over-desire, it is turning good things into ultimate things. So the essence of sin, for the most part, is not just doing bad things, it's taking good things and turning, and, and, and making too much of those good things. It's taking good things in your life, what would be good things, marriage and kids and jobs and money in the bank and nice homes and cars and whatever they might be, and turning those into ultimate things. That's that word for desire. Epithumia. You're putting way too much emphasis on that. Your sense of security is based on how well your kids are doing, or your sense of security is based on how well the marriage is doing or how your spouse treats you. And he's saying, no, that's, that's epithumia. That's a, that's a wrong kind of desire. I know you want to be happy, but it's, you're trying to get your happiness in a created thing as opposed to the creator. So it is trying to get from created things what you should be getting from the creator. So if you love anything more than you love God, which is idolatry, and that's what he's talking about here, if you love anything more than you love God then uh, it will drive you when you seek it, so it's going to control your life. You're going to ride the roller coaster of ups and downs with whatever it is that you're kind of building your sense of identity on. It will control you when you seek it, 
It will disappoint you when you get it because your heart was made for something bigger than something in creation. And believe me, it will devastate you when you lose it because you've put all your eggs in that basket, so to speak. That basket gets crushed or dropped. Then it, it almost, it's almost going to feel like my life is over. And, and I've seen a lot of people become ex- exceptionally uh, depressed overwhelmed by depression and even suicidal because they had built their life on something created as opposed to the creator. And inevitably, it will let you down. It will disappoint you. It will devastate you. It will become like a drug addiction over time. It will become increasingly boring to you and require greater and greater doses after the initial rush. It's called the law of diminishing return. Remember when you've got that first paycheck? Or maybe you landed that, that dream job. Woohoo, you were excited for a couple of weeks. <laughs> or, or maybe it was longer. But where's that excitement now? Well, now I'm kind of shooting for a promotion. I want to get a promotion. Okay, then you get the promotion. Oh, you're excited. You're telling all your friends. And then how long does that last? It's the same thing with, with romance. It's the same thing with with any pursuit in this world, when you turn a good thing into an ultimate thing, inevitably, it will drive your life, it will disappoint your life, it will devastate your life. So this internal conflict that causes external conflict explains to us bullying on the playground, bombs on the battleground, inner city crimes, international terrorism, polarization in politics, fighting in marriages, families, churches, and organizations. It really explains the chaos we see here on planet Earth. Here's the symptoms. The symptoms are really, so this is pride. So this is what pride looks like. Lest you think, well, I have a pretty good handle on all this. Well, uh, let's go through these and see if you really do. Uh, Here's the symptoms of pride. It's drivenness, defensiveness, scornfulness and self-consciousness. So let's walk through those. A couple weeks ago when we went through original sin, I I kind of alluded to it. I I talked about these, but we kind of raced through them. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on these. I want you to really understand. I want you to look at your own life to see where you might be. And this is just going to reveal your, your pride. This is what God's been working on me for quite some time. And misery loves company, and so I'm inviting you into the conviction here. And this, this has really been helpful for me because I thought I had it all together but realized, you know, obviously I don't because how pride was being manifested through, for instance, di- drivenness. Drivenness. It's one thing to work hard. There are seasons in your life and seasons in the year where you have to work hard, but if you are habitually overworking, it's because of inner emptiness, not inner fullness. It is a perpetual discontentment with your life, always needing to succeed, always unhappy, perpetually dissatisfied with performance, always restless. This can be either general, kind of generally in your life, or it can be specific to a field of achievement. So this is an effort to control circumstances and outcomes. And you're so anxious to control circumstances and outcomes, and so you're just working and you're driven and... And so the opposite of this would be humility. So humility is being content with the level of talent, opportunity, and circumstances that God has given you and the fact that you're not perfect but can strive for excellence for God's glory. So first of all, that drivenness. I'd put a check by that one because I've spent most of my life with this drivenness. That's me. How about you? Anybody there? Yeah, okay. I I could just look at you and tell, okay. Yep, I see all of you driven folks out there. So here's the next one, defensiveness. Defensiveness is unteachable, can't take advice or correction, responds negatively uh, to criticism. How do you respond to criticism? Do you blow up or do you have a meltdown? That's defensiveness, that's evidence of pride, that's evidence. So all I'm sharing with you, this is evidence of cosmic insecurity. 
being manifested in how we respond to the circumstance of life. Drivenness, defensiveness, can't admit feelings, faults, and failures. Everything is black or white, can't handle ambiguity. Um, they always have to be right, always have to have that last word. Do you know a few folks like that? Nancy knows one guy like that. I was like that for many years. I mean, my wife could have very easily left me after 10 years because that was me. That was me. Uh, they always have to be right, always have to have the last word. Here's, the, here's also what was me for many years. They are moralists, legalists, who base their identity on their virtuous, having it all together behavior. And so I was, I could spin things right back. I could out-talk Nancy. Anybody knows that. I could out-talk her. I could spin it back on her. Because, hey, I have it all together. You're the one that's the mess. This marriage would be really good if it wasn't for you. That's that attitude. And uh, I thank God that she confronted me over that and the Lord convicted me and brought me to my knees and I confessed and repented. And I just thought, that's arrogance, that's pride. I didn't see it, but I was a moralist. Repentance is always under duress, pressure and force. So the opposite of this would be humility. Humility realizes how little you deserve and how much you have received of God's forgiveness, love, and acceptance, eliminating defensiveness. You don't need to be defensive. The only eyes in the universe that matter looks at you and loves you and adores you, gave his life for you. He sets you free from your sin, so then you're open for criticism. You're able to receive it and respond to it and grow from it. It just shows that you're operating out of not deficit, but out of a completeness in Christ. That's, that's part of that. And then there's, there's scornfulness. So if I didn't get you on those first two, let's see if I can do here, if I can get you on this next one, this third one. Scornfulness. Sometimes you use scornfulness to get your point across or just for humor. Some things do need to be scorned. But at some point when we cross the line and start treating others with contempt, sneering, jeering, ridiculing, and putting people down to make ourselves feel bigger and better than others, then it becomes selfish ambition and conceit causing conflict. If you want to see this on display, just turn on late night talk show host. Nothing but scornfulness. Turn on much of the media, the news. It's packed with scornfulness. And uh, so humility means treating others, whether greater or lesser, in your field of achievement or those who are opposed to you with courtesy, grace, and friendliness, regardless of whether they disagree with you or not. You respond with courtesy, grace, and friendliness. Here's the next one, self-consciousness. So I didn't get you on those three. Let's see if I can get you on this one. And uh, by the way, if none of these land on you, then we got a problem, Okay. I'm just thinking that you probably have a problem. You're probably either perfect in every way, just like Jesus, or you are in denial. Yes, you have a, you've got some, uh, you know, you're, you're doing too much blame shifting and casting blame elsewhere, deflecting the attention off of you onto others. So here's, here's the, the, the last one. Self-consciousness is a preoccupation with yourself. How do I look? How am I feeling? How are people treating me? What do people think about me? If you were to catch yourself, if you, were, if you had exercised mindfulness, in other words, thinking about what you're thinking about, you would realize that you probably do this more than you think. And, um, and, and, and by the way, you would worry less about what others thought of you if you realized how little they did, okay? And so this comes in two different forms. There's superiority and there's inferiority. Superiority is boasting in my success. I deserve admiration because of how much I've achieved. But then there's also inferiority. It's, it comes in the form of not boasting but self-pity, self-pity in my suffering. I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much. So our tendency is to take a person that struggles with inferiority and move them into a superiority attitude is to say, no, you shouldn't feel down on yourself. Come on, you're special. You know that. Come on. And what you're doing is keeping them trapped because our problem is, is self-consciousness. So we think too much about ourselves. 
And you don't try to move a person in an inferiority complex into a superiority complex by telling them to look out for number one. You're keeping them trapped. And, um, and it's, it's this self-consciousness. They need to stop thinking so much about themselves. They have a self-consciousness. It is always down on yourself. If you're always down on yourself, always beating yourself up, or if you're afraid of compliments or any kind of attention, if you're bombarded with brain debates after interacting with others, brain debates about your performance or their treatment of you, it's because you are painfully aware, self-absorbed with thinking about yourself. Let me ask you this question. What is the greatest, what is the number one greatest fear? Speaking in public, public speaking. Why is that? Because of self-consciousness. And I find that a bit ironic because the second, uh, number two greatest fear is death. Does that sound weird? The greatest fear would be uh, public speaking. Number two, dying. Number three is dying while public speaking. Okay. I made that last one up, okay. But, uh, but it's why? Because of self-consciousness. So gospel humility frees you from the relentless pressure of having to prove yourself because we are already proven and secure in Christ. You don't have to prove yourself. You have everything you need in Christ. It's, it's amazing. Galatians 14, uh, 5, 14, 50 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What is he describing? Well, he's describing drivenness and defensiveness and scornfulness and self-consciousness. And inevitably, we're going to bite and devour one another. Galatians 5, 25 and 26, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So keep your hearts filled up with the glory that you need from God, his love and glory. And then he says, let us not become conceited. There's that word, glory hungry. Don't let yourself become glory hungry. Walk in the Spirit. Realize what you have in Christ. And then he says, let us not become conceited. And then he says, provoking one another, envying one another. Provoking one another is an attitude of superiority. Envying one another would be an attitude of uh, in- inferiority. So the cause of conflict is pride. The cure to conflict is humility. And he gives the answer right here in verse 3. So he goes, he goes with the, the cause in the first half of verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And then the second half of verse 3, he gives us the cure. But in humility, but in humility. And then he defines what this humility looks like in these verses. Just, it's beautiful, beautiful Bible study. And uh, so, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So, if the cause of conflict is an inner emptiness, conceit, then humility must mean inner fullness. Inner fullness. That's your fill in the blank there. Inner fullness. I like the quote from J.R. Tolkien. He says, this, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy. When you get praise from those that are praiseworthy, that's above all rewards. I could, I could put it this way. Another way of saying that is, unless you are esteemed by somebody you esteem, you'll have no self-esteem. Or when someone you adore adores you, it's like heaven. We have that in Christ Jesus. No one loves you, adores you, gave his life for you like Jesus. And that fills you, as as you will see as we work through this, it will fill you with glory and love. And trying to fill the inner emptiness through performance and the approval of people is a terrible treadmill. 
But when you fill that inner emptiness by hanging out in the throne room of, a, of the holy king of the universe, you aren't as easily dominated by mere humans who are just like you. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the what? The proud, but gives grace to the humble. No one is too bad for Jesus. A lot of people think that they are too good for Jesus. That's the proud. But if you realize your need, your desperate need for him, oh my goodness, you have his favor. You have grace. Grace is what? How would you define grace? Turn to the person next to you real quick, see if they could define grace for you. What, is, what would be a good definition for grace? How many are thinking uh, maybe a definition that you have? Maybe you don't have any definition, and I'll, I'll define it for you, but how many have gone with the definition unmerited favor? How many are familiar with that one? Okay, a few of you. And that's not true. It's actually merited favor, but it's not merited by you. It's merited by Jesus Christ, okay? So it is earned. But you can't earn it, and that's what it means. I understand. We, I use that too, but it just, it's, you can't earn it. But he earned it for you. And so what do, we gotta, what do we have to understand that he earned for us? Well, this is what it means. This is what favor means. Think about this. It is to be in a sweet and intimate relationship with the God of the universe. That's favor, having his favor. It is, it is living at the center of God's delight in you, adoration of you and deep affection for you. See, this is the individual wholeness that we need. So humility, next fill in the blank on your notes, humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less because of an inner fullness. It is a blessed self-forgetfulness. Let me show you where that is in this text. I think you probably already know. So verse 3, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interest. I like that, that he said that. So are you supposed to look after your own interest? Yeah, based on what this says. Yeah. You can't give what you don't have. And so you need to have boundaries. What are boundaries? The ability to say yes and no to certain things in your life. You can't do everything. So there are certain things that you should be doing. So you say yes to, and you say no to the things that you shouldn't be doing. So you need boundaries, but you also need margin. I lived my life so many years without any margin. So I'd work my tail off at work and come home with nothing. I was empty. I did that for many years. I did that even here at the church. So I'd run it out to the end without any margin. And when you don't have margin, when crisis breaks out in your life, you have no resources. You're not ready. You're not going to be able to respond to those things. So you begin to pace yourself, and you have margin in your life. And you have good boundaries, so you've got to take care of yourself. So what is, what is he saying? He's saying, let each of you look not only to your own interest, boundaries and margin, but also to the interest of others. So what does that mean to look out for the interest of others? Well, Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Imagine what your relationships would be like if you did that in marriage or in parenting or in, um, in your small group, friendships. Outdo one another in showing honor. So humility and pride are defined and determined by what you habitually look at. If you are empty, you habitually look at yourself. How am I doing? How do I look? How are people treating me? Am I getting what I deserve? If you are full, you are able to not only look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. My sister Vicki and her husband David are in town, in, uh, and we have been getting together for dinner uh, with them a number of nights and um, with the whole family, various family members, and with lots of storytelling, love, and laughter. It's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. But one night we got together at the end of the meal, we, my mom brought out this big old 
pumpkin pie. And I had, a, I had a good slice and smothered it with whipped cream. And it was, I think it was like the night, the second night we got together for dinner, and she brought out a pecan pie. And uh, Nancy was cutting it, and um, Nancy cut me a humongous piece. I mean, it wasn't just like this little tiny thing. It was like, it was like, whoa, that's, Yeah. And I, I smothered it with whipped cream. And uh, I should have cut it in half, okay? It's one of those that I should have said, no, that's way too much. And uh, I went ahead and took it, though. And I ate it. It's Nancy's fault. And I mean, I was, I was ready to tap out after that one. It's just like... Oh, my goodness. So if you were to come up to me after that, after I ate that, and said, uh, would you like to have another piece of uh, pecan pie? I would have said, do you want me to throw up? Because that's where I was like at that point, like, I'm, I'm done. I'm maxed out. I don't even want to look at the pie. Get it away from me. Get it away from me. So what's the point? I have no point. I, I just want to share that story with you. Okay? You okay with that? Okay, actually, I do have a point. Oh, this ought to be good. It's only when you're hungry do you think about food. And some of you are thinking about food right now after I describe the pumpkin and pecan pie, okay? And um, the uh, last night's service, all the people rushed out of there right after that point, okay, to go find pumpkin or pecan pie somewhere here in the valley. But only when you're hungry do you think about food. When you are completely full... You can walk right by all kinds of great stuff. So here's the point. Healthy Christians are, are self-forgetfully other-centered because they are fully satisfied in Christ. They're fully satisfied in Christ. In fact, how would you define a humble person? We've already kind of started defining it, but let me give you a definition. It's on the next point in your notes. A humble person is totally dependent upon God exceptionally content and incredibly interested in others. So if you were to interview 10 people and ask them, do you totally depend upon God? Do you trust God completely? And all 10 of them said yes, but you knew that nine out of the 10 didn't, how would you know the difference? How would you know whether someone is truly, totally dependent upon God? I think it's that you would know that because they're not exceptionally content. They don't have a contentment. And they're not other-centered. They're preoccupied on self. It's a cosmic insecurity. They're looking for a way to fill themselves up. That's what they're preoccupied with. And um, let's go back to this idea of contentment. So contentment, remember our definition for contentment back during the uh, Psalm 23 series? So contentment is... The inward, so it's a work inside of us. It's an inward gracious. It's not what we can do. It's really because of the favor of God. Gracious, quiet spirit. A quiet spirit means that there's no, um, no bitterness over the past, no complaining about the present, no worry about the future. So it's an inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully, that joyfully rests in the presence and providence of God. And when you do that, then you're going to be other-centered. You're going to have the bandwidth to be able to navigate through the conflicts of your life. You just are. That's just what happens. And... Um, Proverbs, or uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Um, that's really what we're talking about here is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when you love your neighbor as yourself, this is what you're trying to do. Philippians 1, 25. Paul said, I work for your progress and joy in the faith. So when you interact with others, whether it be in a small group or, or wherever it might be, this is what your heart is. When you're content in Christ, your heart is this. I'm going to work with them for their joy in him. 
They don't know this, but I'm really wanting them to see his joy because I want them to experience what I'm experiencing. And so the best thing I can pass on to them is what, what I'm experiencing so that they can see Christ more clearly. So the cause of conflict is pride. The cure to conflict is humility. And now we come to the ultimate example, the model and means of conflict resolution, the incarnation. Verses 5 through 11 is an amazingly famous passage in the Bible about the incarnation of Christ. It's a magnificent sweeping hymn, a song of praise to the beauty and the greatness of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Now, my question would be, why would Paul give this sudden theological discourse in the middle of this very practical teaching on conflict and humility in the church? Why would he do that? Does that sound odd to you? And if you really understand the gospel, you'd say no. If you understood the Bible, you would say no. Because self-help and how-to messages, which are Dominant in most American churches these days, self-help and how-to messages can restrain the will, but only the deep, immeasurable love of Christ Jesus can transform the heart. So that's what Paul is wanting us to experience, a transformed heart through the incarnation. That's why he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, talking about Christ, have this mind among yourselves. How do we have that mind, Paul? Next statement in verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You're going to have this mind because, because of, of what you have in him, what he gives you. It's, he's the source of that. Listen to what John Piper says about really kind of beholding the glory of Christ and all that he's done and he says this, no one would go to the Grand Canyon to increase their sense of self-esteem. Nobody stands on the edge of the Alps or the Rockies in order to go there to feel better about themselves. Do you know why you go there? Because you were created to be satisfied with splendor, not self. You were created to be infinitely, eternally, fully, joyfully satisfied in a grand splendor, not a great self. Lay down your quest for the applause of men and the approval of men and begin to get on a quest for the one thing that will satisfy your soul, the splendor of Jesus Christ and all that God is for you in him. That's beautiful. That's what Paul is doing here. He's wanting us to be captivated by the beauty and the glory and the splendor of Christ Jesus as he begins to show us the incarnation and all that Christ has done for us. Here's your next uh, fill-in-the-blank next thought on your notes. So Jesus is fully God, so this is part of the incarnation defining, defining it. Jesus is fully God who became fully man. It's called the hypostatic union. It's one of those mysteries like the Trinity and, the, and divine sovereignty and human responsibility kind of mystery as you kind of navigate through those. So it's the hypostatic union uh, is what it's called. So Jesus is fully God who became fully man to be the only mediator perfectly representing both God and man. So let me walk you through the text here. Verse 6, show you where that is. So he says, who, though he was in the form God, so he's just saying, Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God. So he's fully God. And then in verse 7 and 8, he shows us that he's fully man, being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in, in human form. So he's fully God, fully man. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So if people tell you, hey, I know God, and they haven't come through the mediator Christ Jesus, they don't know God, no matter what they say. There's only one mediator. There's only one way to get to God, it's through Jesus Christ. The Bible's very clear about that. Jesus was very clear about that. And so the doctrine of the incarnation is, is unique to the Christian faith. The incarnation is the belief that the eternal, infinite God became a physical, limited, vulnerable, mortal human being in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect representative of God to man. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the exact imprint of God. You want to get to know God? Get to know Jesus. Read about him in the four gospel accounts. 
The more you get to know Jesus, you'll be getting to know God. But Jesus is the perfect representative of man to God. Romans 5.18, just as Adam's sin led to condemnation for all men, so Jesus' obedience leads to justification and life for all men. So all other religions send advisors about what you must do to be right with God, but Christianity sends God with good news, telling us what who he is and what he has done to make us right with, with him. So it's the combination of his divinity, fully God, and humanity, fully man, that both comforts and convicts us. So this is how you know if you're really in touch with this idea of him being fully God, fully man. So it comforts because he knows my pain and can help me in my pain. That eliminates fear. So in his humanity, he knows my pain. In his divinity, he can help me with my fear and help me with my pain. It convicts us because he knows me to the bottom. In his divinity, I mean, he knows my deepest sin, and, and, and yet he loves me to the skies. He, that eliminates all pride. Listen to what uh, Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, speaking of Jesus, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That word propitiation means he took on the wrath of God. All the wrath of God was poured out on him on the cross. That's propitiation. To make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 is, is our verses that I memorized years ago. They've just been such comfort to me. And it says this, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So let us boldly come before the throne of grace with with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. To help us in our time of need. Whatever you're going through, our sinless Savior has gone through it and understands and can give you the power, strength, or strength to face anything for his glory. That's, that's part of that incarnation. Whatever you're facing, we're talking about conflict, even if you're facing relational conflict, He's with you. He loves you. He's going to help you. That's the understanding of the incarnation, fully God, fully man. Here's the next one. Jesus emptied himself of his glory by living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died so that we could be full of his love and glory. So here's a question that you should probably think about daily. How far will Christ go to redeem me? Or here's another way of looking at it. What is the measure of his love for us, for me and you? I talked about this last weekend during communion. So what's the measure of his love? So daily you should be basking in the reality is, God, the measure of your love is your son, Jesus, coming to this earth to rescue me and die in my place for my sins. That's the measure of his love. Yeah, 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 I've heard that before. No, no, no. You're not going to be cavalier or casual about that. You're going to be thinking deeply about that so that it lands deep into your heart because it will transform your life. And so, listen, let's walk through these verses. So he, who, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The NIV says to be used to his own advantage. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It says even, even death on the cross. I think... All of the text, all of God's word is holy ground, but this particularly even more so is holy ground when you really begin to understand this. I started thinking up, trying to think up different analogies and illustrations, and for me to try to give you an illustration of, of this in our life would be almost blasphemous because this is so far beyond what we could even comprehend. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. You and I can have no idea of how high an honor it is to be equal with God. 
How can we, therefore, measure the descent of Christ when our highest thoughts cannot comprehend the height from which he came? The death to which he descended is immeasurably below any point we have ever reached, and the height from which he came is inconceivably above our loftiest thought. Do not, however, forget the glory that Jesus laid aside for a while. Remember that he is very God, a very God, and that he dwelt in the highest heaven with his Father. But yet, though he was thus infinitely rich, for our sakes, for our sakes, he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be rich. It's amazing. He didn't shed his divine nature, but he stooped down to assume a human nature. God became a man. But, but more than that, and this is what, what Paul is trying to get across, but more than that, he stooped even lower to be not just a man, but a servant. But more than that, he stooped even lower to be a servant who dies. But more than that, he stooped to the lowest depths to die the most excruciating death as a criminal for you and I. So, so the word excruciating means out of the cross. That's, what that, that's the definition of that word out of the cross. Why did Christ do this? Why did he do this? For the glory of the Father, but also to fill you and me up with his glory and love. That's why he did that. Remember these verses I shared with you when I talked about original sin, John chapter 17? They landed on me a few years ago, and oh my goodness, when I begin to realize the implication of, of these verses, John 17, 22 through 23, you're getting a glimpse into the triune God and the, and the uh, self-giving love between the triune God. And this is Jesus speaking to the Father. It's quite an amazing prayer and interaction. You see such glory being shared back and forth between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within that, this is what he says, John 17, 22 and 23, he says, the glory that you have given to me, he's talking to the Father, Jesus talking to the Father, I have given to them, that's us. The glory that you have given to me has been given to them, glory meaning delight, love, adoration, that they may be one even as we are one. So it's talking about uh, harmony and unity, that's causes that that causes, the cause of that would be harmony and unity, that, that by me, that they may be one even as we are one. And then he goes on, verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Remember the words that were spoken over Jesus a couple different times? One was at his baptism. The other one was at his, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration where the, the Father speaks these words from heaven upon the Son. He says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So how much does the Father delight in the Son? That's how much he delights in you. How much does the Father love the Son? That's how much he loves you. How much does the Father adore the Son? That's how much he adores you. That is amazing. You gotta be kidding me. That's overwhelming. When that landed on me, it was like, oh my. You and I are desperate to fill ourselves with glory, but we end up empty. Jesus Christ emptied himself of glory so that we could be full. Jesus Christ became small so that we could become big in the eyes of God. Jesus Christ was treated as we deserve so that when we believe in him, we are treated as he deserves. Jesus looks at you and says, to me and in me, you are more valuable than all the wealth in the universe. 
those words should be ringing in your soul coming from God to you, obviously through Jesus Christ. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If there was anything that you did when you woke up, the very first thing you did in the morning when you woke up would be that, to bask in the reality of that, to be satisfied with his steadfast love for you. We're desperate to do that daily. And that's what he's showing us. This is what Paul is teaching us. So to the degree that you not only get a hold of that intellectually, but more than that, it gets a hold of you existentially, experientially, is to the degree that you are complete in Christ. There's going to be humility. Write this verse down at the end of, of that, of right in that, before we hit the next point. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Most Christians don't know this and can't do this, but this is the key to wholeness, actually. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding the glory of Christ, we become whole, is really what he's saying. And most Christians don't understand what that means. So my question for you, are you regularly beholding the glory of Christ? In so doing, it will make you whole because you'll hear those words spoken to you, over you. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You will be basking in the reality of his adoration and love and delight in you. And since we, since I have fullness in Jesus Christ through his encouragement. Back to verse one. Encouragement, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. By the way, I would encourage you to memorize that verse. I've been thinking about that verse lately. And I'll wake up in the middle of the night. I don't sleep well. And so this is what I think on. I go back to that. Since I have encouragement in Christ, comfort from his love, I just bask in that. I think about it. I reflect on it deeply. I allow it to get deep into my heart. And because we have these things, since I have these things, I can empty myself for others' fullness in Christ. I can empty myself for others' fullness in Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. How do we become rich? Well, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So here's the gospel trajectory. The way up is down. The way to be truly rich is to give. The way to rule is to serve. The way to be infinitely happy is to seek the happiness of others. The greatest form of glory is to give away your glory for someone else. And so when you see what he did for you, that will fill you up and you will want to empty yourself for others' fullness in Christ. And he ends this text by talking about the exaltation of Christ. He says in verses 9 through 11, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus didn't come with a sword in his hands but to have nails driven into his hands. With his first coming, he came to bear our judgment. With his second coming, he will come with a sword in his hand to bring judgment. If you don't bow your knee to him now in repentance and faith for bearing your judgment, most certainly you will bow your knee to him later when he brings judgment upon you. That's what he's saying. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So guess what? I'm bound my knee now and forever because he is Lord of my life. How about you? Yes. Praise God. Bow your knee every day. God, you're the Lord of my life. I need you. I trust in you. Fill me with your glory and love. Next weekend... We're going to talk about uh, the N in the acronym, New Birth. John chapter 3, uh, you can read that in advance. Right after our prayer here uh, this morning, I'll be up front. If you're new, I would love the opportunity to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason whatsoever, we would love to pray with you this morning. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father God, we... 
We bow our knee now in repentance and faith to your Son, our Savior Jesus, for bearing our judgment on the cross as the only mediator between God and man. He emptied himself so that we could be filled with your glory and love. And since we have fullness in Christ Jesus through his encouragement, comfort from his love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, may we be people who empty ourselves in humility for others' fullness in Christ. We pray these things in his glorious and beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.